What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Run Your Mouth Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Yo Kratom, only the most excellent of all the Kratom companies in the entire world. You find me another Kratom company that's going to ship you product in the by the kilo for $60. It doesn't exist. You find me another Kratom company that's going to sponsor this podcast. It doesn't exist. YoKratom.com, home of the $60 kilo and the perfect sponsor for this week's episode where we talk about tech censorship. We talk about how most brands, they sponsor shit just so they can make sure that they aren't telling you truth, that they make sure that they aren't being funny, that they aren't doing anything offensive, but then companies like Yo Kratom come along and they say, we're going to change everything. We're going to start shipping people kilos for $60. No questions asked. We're going to get them high quality Kratom at the best prices. And we're going to sponsor stuff that no one else would touch because it's good. And we're going to destroy the entire market. These other companies trying to jack up their Kratom prices, trying to get all the profits for themselves. Well, we're, we're going to get rid of them because we're going to sell it for the real value, at a good value, at prices that people can afford and consume all the Kratom that they want. And at the same time, we're going to take those profits and we're going to invest it into the best content so that people can get great content. That's what we're doing here at Yo Kratom. So uh, thank you to Yo Kratom, home of the $60 kilo. Very special guest with me tonight, Andrew, living out in Brooklyn. I like Andrew because I like anyone who road trips to my gigs. It makes me feel like a rock star when people tell me that they got in their car and actually, because I won't even leave my house if you're around the corner telling me that it's something that's fun. I'm like, I'm staying home. So when people actually travel to come out from gigs, I'm like, hell yeah. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So you had reached out to me because I, and we're going to get into some of the details on this, but I guess you're working in the tech landscape and it's interesting to me. I got uh, a, a couple people that are working in high tech who listen to this podcast and they all hit me up like, Hey man, I love what you're doing. I love everything you had to say, but I live in a world of people that would murder me if I shared these opinions. So I got to be real quiet about it. It's like being a secret Jew out of Nazi Germany. You don't want anyone to know about it because you're going to be in trouble. Uh, so my question for you is when I, usually I find highly intelligent people or people that are really in the know most of them, I find, tend to take an anti-government stance because they understand government's not really doing people any favors. And when I first experienced that was in college, I thought I was going to work in finance. You know, I'm circumcised. I thought it would be a good career choice for me. <laughs> it wasn't. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a good Jew. I'm bad with money. I'm compulsive. Didn't work out for me. But the one time I worked in, it was just an unpaid internship I talked my way into. It was at a hedge fund. And those guys, first time they mentioned Austrian economics to me, I'd never heard of it beforehand. But what I noticed is with the finance guys, they got to place bets on what's really happening. So they'll give you the real story. And so they would watch the news and just tell you who's being full of shit, what the Fed's doing. They just saw through it all. They didn't care one way or the other. They're just placing bets and trying to make money. So there's something very interesting about the tech people that I would think these are highly intelligent people, but they seem to be coming to a radically different conclusion um, about what they'd like for the government to be, which I would say leans more socialist and more even crazier than that is that they seem to be pro-censorship because they really want to protect what they see as being their point of view and their viewpoint of what government should be. So I just spoke a whole bunch and I laid out a lot of really big topics on the table. So why don't we first start off with that you're working in tech and you would, um, I guess, validate my claim that most of the people working in this industry lean left and are aggressive about that. So let's start from there. 
Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, you know, it was less so when I started. Um, 10 years ago, the tech sector was a very different world. And I think um, the transformation uh, from the older regime into the newer one is very much indicative of the world that we've entered recently. Um, I, I like to describe it kind of like how the Russians actually did socialism, like all these other enterprising people built up these companies into what they become. And then the new blood came in and is really destroying it by um, feeding off of like the, the recently dead corpse of all the good work that was built before it. And so um, though these woke people that are currently in tech um, are definitely the majority, they weren't always that way. Um, they were, they're a recent force. And, is, um, and so to your eye, is that just because my, my sister's only four years younger than I am. Uh, and she went to, you know, I, I barely got into college. I barely made it out of Queens College. My sister's a different person. She went to Barnard and then NYU Law School, studious, hmm. smart kid. But her experience being in Barnard just four years in college after me, she came out with what otherwise I would have said, hey, people are just describing this PC culture. It became a very new thing where I got to tell you, me and my dad, especially my dad, my dad's a really funny guy and he was always funny in a, like in a kind of offensive way. And our meal tables, even though Sabbath observant Friday night, that's kind of when we did family dinner, there was a ball busty thing about the way that we acted. And me and him would throw back jokes where the only thing that was funny was that someone was saying something really offensive. And that has somewhat changed because my younger sister gets very upset about this and will storm off from the table. And that's just a four-year difference where some of what we say makes us the devil to her. Growing up in the same house, the only difference is she went to college four years after me. And I guess I, maybe better education. So she was privy to information that I wasn't, even though I'll just, I'm going to come at it with my opinion because it's my show. She's wrong. And I think she managed to get brainwashed by professors, but it's only a four year difference. So to your eye, is that all it is, is that the kids in college now are getting a different education than what you got. And so they're coming in kind of brainwashed with this, with this agenda. Is that, am I just writing this narrative in, or would you say as a firsthand person, that's kind of what you're seeing? Well, for me, anecdotally, that was the experience. I mean, um, think about YouTube and how formative that was for the Ron Paul revolution, right? Like those were the days when we would self-direct our intellectual journey. But um, it, everyone in college today is having that journey chosen for them largely. Um, back during 2007, for instance, there was no autoplay on YouTube. There were no recommended videos. If you loved this, you'll like this as well. None of that was happening back then. And so I really do believe it's actually a, it's a property of the media ecology that we're in today. And I think um, we were able to see this transition happen in real time because of the automation capabilities of ad tech and um, um, companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook have pioneered in the um, rubber stamping effect that people like Edward Bernays talked about almost 100 years ago. And so I think that what we're talking about here is, um, even though the difference in time is so slight, um, so much happened in that four-year stretch of time, I think. Um, we went from a kind of choose-your-own-adventure internet to more of a cable TV internet in that short stretch of time. Basically, the first Obama administration is when all of that happens. It's so because I remember when I was in college and I was lucky, even though I didn't do well in the major, I was lucky to be a finance major uh, because when learning about the subprime mortgage crisis and other things, even though I was in a college environment, the finance people, like I said, they're, they're just looking at the money and they're trying to train you because you got to place bets on the money. So all that other stupid horse shit falls away. It's just not relevant because 
They need to actually give you an education on whether or not there's a gender study is not going to help you uh, run, you know, financial reports for a company. So it's just not relevant. And to, to the credit of the college I went to, there were two courses. One was um, the, I think it was called the political science of economics. And it was basically, it was a study of, we've got this thing called economics that tells us the best decisions that should be implemented for everybody. And yet they aren't implemented. So what's going wrong that government's not implementing it. And that one really opened up my mind to, hey, government's not our friend. They're power brokers. They're not looking to implement the best economic you know, structures. Then also just the general flow of some of the um, economic classes, you just, you start realizing, hey, government's not implementing things that would benefit everybody. But to what you're saying of the change in the internet, I remember writing a paper on the subprime mortgage crisis and somehow I just came across George, um, I'm not sure if his last name is pronounced Reisman or Reisman, but I came across him and he had this article, which I can't find to this day. I got to track him down as a person to talk to him. He had this article about dollar diplomacy that blew my mind where he just started talking about how government's in the business of basically the US dollar and everything we're doing is to keep up that value of the dollar and here's how it's crushing other, anyways, I might be getting that wrong, but after that, I started reading his essays, and he had essays on gun control, changed my mind on gun control, healthcare, changed my mind literally on all of the big issues, brilliant essays on every one of those topics. I find that the internet is not as open of a place that if I was going through college now, I don't think I'd ever come across that article, which I think was um, uh, from the um, Mises uh, website. I believe that it was there. But I just don't think searching around on the internet, I would ever find, I, I would ever find him. So to your eye, was, was that tech companies? Was it Google? Was it the government? Who managed to look at the internet and go, hey, this thing, and by, listen, if you're really slick about it, you can still find more information than 10, 20 years ago. So you can, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like if you find libertarianism somehow, you can find all this fucking information in a way that it's there. But if you're just going to Google and searching around, I think you're right that, the prism of what's available. It's kind of like a more narrow view. So you actually work in tech. Tell us more about, you know, what's actually going on there. Well, I think that, you know, you're identifying the correct mechanism. And I think the um, main proponent of the mechanism is the ad tech industry. Essentially, whenever a technology um, centralizes, I think what happens is the advertising industry eventually seeps into it and sort of um, gets its tentacles all around it. And, um, you know, Google very much was a self-directed search engine in its early days, but then ad tech comes in and, you know, of course, they're the purveyors of much advertising technology, but when they start employing it in their own products as opposed to simply selling it to others, um, like Google has done recently, what this has done is led to a really decreased search engine quality. Now results aren't nearly as good. They try to advertise to you what the best answer to your question is at the top before they even give you um, a relevant search result. And so this has led to a real dearth of um, understanding because only what the advertisers want you to see is really what you see. I think it was Scott Horton who called uh, Google a disinformation engine, and that's completely correct. Um, you also saw this with YouTube. You saw this even with Spotify. I think it's um, pretty interesting that nowadays, if you want to watch Joe Rogan, you have to sit through a bunch of interstitial ads. Um, you know, I, so even if people want to find the truth, it's really hard to do it. And you're sitting through a lot of torture just to get it done. Now, that brings up what's something that's very interesting and personal to me is that I work selling advertising for podcasts. Yeah. And 
I will tell you, as a person who consumes podcasts, I like the most offensive thing you can do. As a person who's a fan of free speech, I think anyone should be able to say anything, and I would like to contribute to that. Right. As a person who needs to go sell a product, I'm like, hey, can you get me the trans person who's going to talk about their identity? Hey, can we not be so offensive? Because let me tell you, when you got to go sell something, I can sell anything. I can sell... I can sell, hey, we're two gay guys talking about our gender identity, or I can go sell, hey, here's this super offensive podcast, and as the guy who's selling just financial capitalism, I'm going to have to put in a certain amount of hours, and I'm putting in these hours in order that I can get a sale, and then I'm going to take that money so that I can live my life and go do this content. So let me tell you, when it comes to me as a content producer, I want it, this is the show that I do. I will do it for no money if I have to for the rest of my life. I believe in free speech. Here's what I want to do. When I'm on the sales side and I got to sell stuff, and by the way, I, 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 I do sell the offensive stuff, but there's a part of my brain that turns into a media executive and goes, I can, it will take the same amount of, I can, I can make more money in less hours selling less offensive things. So the pure capitalist would be, right. why am I, like, I'm not doing my day job for charity. I do my, I do my charity for, not that this is charity. I enjoy doing this, but you see what I'm saying? Like, this is a labor right. of love, but when I'm engaging in labor for money, that is labor. I don't want to volunteer for anyone. Go get me what the market wants. So what, what's interesting is you're almost describing Google as at least at its origin, not that it necessarily had an agenda, but more there's more money in having this kind of, um, and perhaps if we did an analysis of why there's more money in this safe, this safer route or in this more um, censored route, it's because of money that industries that at some point are being financed by the government or like, for example, that it could be that some of that money's coming from uh, the military sector, which wouldn't have the resources or capital that it did if it wasn't for the government. So it could be that we're back in the groove of, hey, this is all somehow being financed and it's the tentacles of government and the capital that flows from government that's starting to police the internet. But what you're describing is Google is a little bit like me, where they're just in it to make money. Over time, more of the ad dollars is coming its way. And because they're flowing with the ad dollars, we end up with a, like any, any content in the world. It starts off as content, the money gets involved, and then suddenly it's not a content experience, it becomes a money experience. Well, I think you're definitely onto something there. I think that's very much an accurate uh, portrayal of how Google does their business model. And they do it, of course, to be able to stay innovative and to be able to bring new kinds of products to the market. And so you have a sort of ebb and flow of whether that's a positive or a negative thing. But I also think that it's not necessarily bad to run your content enterprise like a business. Um, Frank Zappa pointed out that the music industry put out much better music when it wasn't run by a bunch of musicians. When it was run by former GE microwave salesmen, they ended up putting out you know, what he thought was better music and more varied music. Now, when you extrapolate that um, to today's much different you know, media landscape, the thing that sticks out to me is you have the double-edged sword of advertising because you have both um, the need to consolidate and um, you know, accentuate your income stream. You also have a need to keep the advertisers happy. And so I thought it was interesting that today I tried to play one of the new Playboy Cardi tracks on YouTube and I got an ad for Lockheed Martin. Nice. Now, also, I think that's yeah. interesting. And I also think that must be why so many anti-war people get cut out from YouTube. Also, I just want to point out the advertisers um, are, I'm going to just say the advertisers a lot of times are wrong 
and that they come to you because you're the content person and you have a relationship with your audience. And it's like, you go worry about your product. You come to me and I'll, I'll tell my, if it, if it fits my audience, I'll tell my audience about it because they're my audience. Yeah. But the advertisers like to step in and go, listen, we don't just want it to be your audience. We also want it to be audience um, that's around this style. Well, that's not what they're here for. They're not here to listen to the general electric podcast because you guys don't understand content and that would suck. That's why you have to come to me to advertise your products is because I do something other than that. So I have a fan base and audience. And so it does become a little bit of a game of leverage where I think if more people said, Hey, fuck you, we're doing the content that we're doing. Um, but it, this is where it kind of gets a little bit trippy. The problem is there's still enough of a market for people that will sell out. So you end up with enough avenues for average, like, or stated differently, there's enough people in the market that have an interest in, um, let's say safe content that projects the views of these advertisers, which means advertisers aren't forced to, for example, aver there are a lot of advertisers that do advertise on, you know, a show like listen to the offensive comedy podcast. Legion of Skanks has advertisers. Right. At the end of the day, Coors Light can still hit a demographic of 20 to 35 year olds without Legion. So Legion of Skanks doesn't, or podcasts like that don't command enough of the 20 to 35 year old male market share that Coors Light has to be there. They can go find some kid in Brooklyn who's painting flowers to show social justice and they can, you know, they can promote on that and still hit who, even though I, I promise you they're giving up market share, which is interesting, but we don't have to go too down, far down that rabbit hole. Well, I, th I think the main uh, um, kind of like wormhole that you do go down is whenever you have a centralized media institution. And that's where I think this unholy alliance really becomes a problem. When you look at like Hollywood, they've been doing product placement for candy and soda since the 70s and 80s. And I like to call that just two toxins working together, you know, and yeah. they produce poison. But in the podcasting world, when you have um, so-called offensive uh, podcasts like Legion of Skanks, even, you know, run your mouth, you know, that also opens up the opportunity for new customer bases for more obscure products. And so, you know, I like that um, that impact has happened. That means people like Yo Kratom have like an, an immediate direct connection to a fan base and to a, a potential customer base. So it's not all bad, but I think what is bad is um, the way that these advertising schemes have become themselves tools for propaganda. And I think that's where we kind of land today in 2020. So can you ex explain that just a little bit more? So I think the line you just said is that these advertising companies have actually become a pathway or tool for propaganda. So just explain more of, I guess, how the advertisers are directly shaping the content. Sure. Well, it's more because um, of where they were innovating at the time. The advertisers um, on the internet were very keen to um, stay out of the user's way and do a lot of data um, collection. And what that led to was a, a newfound ability to get insights from basic user behavior. And, you know, uh, many people in the digital media realm um, know about this, like impression counts and things like this. Um, this was limited to things related to like um, advertising for your product or getting your brand recognition up. But this was really the way that companies would leverage these powers. But we've seen more recently that companies, especially companies like Twitter, um, even companies like Medium and Substack are really using the um, content of users input, the actual words and their meaning 
to really become um, a new force of data collection that's being engaged in all over the world by all sorts of firms, everyone from the major airlines all the way down to the tech companies. And so what that's led to is a sort of um, brandization, I guess, of ideology. It's hard to put terms down because I think these are very new ideas. But what we're basically seeing is where once we would only have advertising um, be about brand now about ideas and about philosophy and about catchphrases. I think that's where stuff like um, follow the science and flatten the curve come from and um, even support the troops, right? It's these sort of insights from high tech branding and um, the sort of downstream effect that they've had on politics. And as our very guest mentions, our sponsor, Yo Kratom, that means it's my chance to cut back into the episode and do what? Pitch you. Yo Kratom, home of the $60 kilo. Where else are you getting kilo for $6? Nowhere. Doesn't exist. Um, it's the Yo Kratom challenge. I challenge you right now. Get into your car. Drive west. Stop at every single gas station in the entire country. You find a place that's selling you a kilo of Kratom for less than 60 bucks. I don't know what the prize will be. Um, well, we'll do something for you. We'll do something nice. It's the the, the run your mouth, yo Kratom challenge. Um, and on that note, you know, like we're talking about internet censorship, all these other companies fucking you up your asses. I don't I don't think they're really doing that, that. That got a little bit aggressive there. I don't think that there are any companies showing up to your house, ripping down your jeans, spitting in your asshole and shoving their wieners in there. But they're in like a metaphorical sense. I don't even know if that's a word. I don't know what metaphors are. I didn't really go to school. Um, but you know, I do feel raped by companies. Do you, don't you, don't you feel like they've raped you? So if you want to unrape yourself from these companies that have been raping you, what you should do is load up on Kratom. YoKratom.com, home of the $6 kilo. Let's get back into it. All right. So it sounds to me like you just laid out two different things. The first is that now there's so much better big data that um, companies that are interested in convincing of us of political ideologies, they have more market data that they can come up with these slogans um, or they can better figure out how they need to sell us these ideas. And so they're just doing a better job of selling us propaganda. So is that, is that part of what you're saying the new issue is? Yeah, I think they've really keyed into how to get very large swaths of the public to move in the same direction. Very much like how advertising is meant to make you loyal to a brand um, at the exclusion of all others. That's very much how ideas are now communicated online. They're like at the exclusion of any other perspective. But so... However, let's say, you know, if I'm Sony and I'm trying to come up with my catchphrase to get you to buy Sony, I still got to compete with Panasonic. So what is giving the advantage to, let's go with what I'm most interested in, which would be um, PC culture or the advance of a socialist agenda or like this one world economy, all of those things, which the audience knows exactly what I'm describing. Right. So is it that they that the tech companies are giving over this information only to those that would, I guess, be interested in those political philosophies? And so they're getting better access to data that people like the libertarians can't compete? Or what is going on there that I guess that one side seems to be winning here? Let me say this, this is something I can say with a lot of authority because I work directly in the field of like getting video analytics, for instance. All of the numbers are a lie. All of the numbers are a lie. YouTube's view counts are a lie. All, anything that you're getting from a corporation, especially one um, of the big fang 
you know, companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, all of those numbers are basically just narratives being pumped out by those companies and companies that even imitate in these products and want to overtake market share of these big competitors. They're also engaging in what's essentially I've very said that about numbers. TikTok, dude, I said that about TikTok that their yes. numbers are for sure inflated because here's what, here's what YouTube is. It's a lottery where you go, Hey, if I put up content, I could be chosen and I can be great. And so what they need is they need winners. So what TikTok did is they came around and they made it look like the guy who was getting a thousand is getting a hundred thousand. The guy's getting a hundred thousand or a million. So everyone goes, Oh, this is the place to hang out because this is where I can get famous. And everyone's just playing the lottery. So to that point, you're, you're directly saying what I'm, what I, my theory was true. TikTok and because by the way, the same thing happened in podcasts. That's where the IAB thing came around. Yes. Basically, all of the numbers were being reported as inflated. Same idea. You want to get everyone excited about your platform, and the more you can go, hey, this is where everyone's hanging out. You get more of the advertisers, and you get more of the content people. In other words, you just make it seem like it's a bigger deal than it is. It's like you know, basically lying about ratings. So you're saying that every single platform, they're selling advertising, and so they always want to claim that there's more engagement than there is. And particularly if they're more interested in, let's say, a left-wing agenda, they can win by theoretically saying CNN's getting, look, the CNN video got a million impressions where this Fox News got 150. So that's basically the theory you're putting forward. Precisely. And um, it's even bigger than that because there's all these network effects, right, that are gained from being at the top of that pile. And those effects are really cumulative and they're even exponential as time goes on. And so once you get one of those lucky breaks from the algorithm, you're on um, a sort of a cataclysmic journey through um, all the different parts of the internet that you could possibly muster. And throughout that time, you're trying to stay clinging to that power. And that's very much the way that YouTube operates today. They began as the free video repository where all views could be expressed and uh, there's no limits to anything. And as they discovered that being that repository is really expensive, they had to start walking it back. And so they start utilizing the tools of their own content creators, their ways of lying about the data to themselves, lie about their own motives. And so that's why I think companies like YouTube are deleting a lot of so-called racist video. It's really all in an effort just to sort of um, fix their big business blunder without so now, taking responsibility for it. Okay. So now we kind of have a slightly bigger question, which is if you just look at this from a financial standpoint, I'm General Motors. I'm looking to sell cars. I just need an audience of people that I can sell cars to. What the fuck do I care if they're racist what the fuck do I like if it's a bunch of Nazis and they're going to, well, maybe I don't want all Nazis and Chevrolets. Maybe that start that stops to look good. So I'm making my example too ridiculous. So let's, let's, let's tone back the example to just a conversation about political culture. I mean, PC, right? Like PC, yeah. that's pretty divisive where you've got some people that go, Hey man, I'm going to say my offensive thing. And that doesn't make me a bad person. And then other people that go, no, if we don't actually have the censorship, then you're propagating, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that minorities can't get ahead or, or whatever, whatever their agenda is. I don't even quite understand it, but let's just say that, let's just say you can evenly divide the country 50, 50 on both sides. And that's pretty divisive. Why the fuck would general motors get involved in that conversation? You would think general motors, Hey, I'm just looking to sell cars. Now here's, what's interesting about advertising. Yeah. If you really crunch most advertising dollars, I believe a lot of spending happens from probably not that like Coca-Cola, um, 
your insurance companies. Like if you want to buy, I bet I'm pulling this number out of my fucking ass here, but I bet if you look at like overall advertising spending in this country, I wouldn't be surprised if 60 to 70% was like your, your 50 from 15 companies. And it's exactly what I said. It's your Coca-Cola's, your Budweiser, your Gillette's, your, your insurance companies. I bet there's a giant amount of money that's not being spent by all that many companies. So like, let's just say that there are 20 companies in the world that could really shape the opinions of YouTube. So what the fuck happens where all of a sudden these companies go, Hey, I don't want to be on this offensive content. Is that because they're afraid of the market or are they actually shaping the market where it's not that they're getting all these letters by people who are going, Hey, we're offended. It's that they actually, for some reason, these large corporations actually want to push an agenda. What like, so in your opinion, because if, if the source is that it's the advertising dollars, is that just that dummies are making decisions because they think the market really cares that they step in and regulate this? Or are they actually pushing the narrative? Well, I think, you know, you're right to point out that there's probably a very centralized, small list of companies that do a majority of the ad spend on the internet. And I also think that because of that, that implicates their um, huge list of products that they are stewards over. And so when you're talking about Gillette, that's probably some multinational that it itself has like lots of brands under it, right? And um, there's all these different kinds of products. And with all of that uh, product expansionism, there's got to be a wider net that you have to cast with your ads. And I think um, that's incompatible with the internet's desire to further subatomicize and classify, make subgenres out of everything, basically, right? Which is what we see on the internet. That's like the natural form everything takes, is that you've got some weird subculture, and then you get a subculture from that subculture, and then some weird message board pops up to support all the people that follow it. But, um, you know, advertisers, By want the way, to, I think, make the net bigger. What's interesting is just look at, um, I, I loved Opie and Anthony, and mm -hmm. Anthony Kubia is still super funny. Opie kind of went off. I'll just say he did his own thing. I haven't really seen or heard yeah. what he's done kind of since Opie and Anthony. But 10 years ago, Opie and Anthony was on Sirius XM. Podcasting didn't exist. So if you were kind of a comedy fan, that was where all of the comics that we know and love were hanging out. Your Bill Burr's, yeah. Patrice, um, Rogan, all those people. It was kind of centralized. Now you've got an opportunity for basically every comic to do their own podcast and kind of grab a little of that market share. It's almost like Highlander where you don't just have this one thing because one person was kind of, you know, and, that, and that's true of almost every, like if you were interested, whatever interest you had, so 10 years ago, one person would be picked by the network, uh, like music videos, take music videos. So it was MTV, whatever MTV chose, that's what you were seeing. Now I bet there's probably 50 channels on YouTube of people who are making money or each independent artist is now making the money mm -hmm. off of if their music video. So we've basically opened up the market or take Dave, Dave Smith makes money off of part of the problem, which is awesome. You know, a couple years ago, even 10 years ago, he would have needed a radio job at 770, which is like your New York City <laughs> yeah. conservative thing. He wouldn't have fit in there because he's a libertarian. There's probably 10 guys who work there and make money, and that's it. Now, that audience is split where you can be this niche person and you can make your money and have your audience because we're able to self-produce, and so media is much more wide open. But if, with that being said, so you would think that there would be more and more brands stepping in to try and 
like I, I had a joke a year ago. I was like, I want to just, I, cause I've been trying to get a whiskey company. I know the way uh, audiences like part of the problem drink. I know that yeah. we, like, <laughs> if you were to step in as, as the whiskey company advert, like if Jack Daniels were to start at some point, a beer company is going to come in advertise with like Rogue and Legion. They will make, a hundred million dollars and at some point some companies are going to go fuck we gave up a lot of market share by just not advertising on these channels but to that point i would think from that would almost give me a uh more hopeful view here that a lot of brands are actually just leaving market share on the table because the internet's open enough where we have split into all these niche groups and the advertisers trying to go hey we're not going to advertise there hasn't hasn't been able to squash the content. You take people like me, I'm going to do this with no money. You're not getting rid of me. Like you don't have to advertise or pick me. I'm, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. So I think, I think that um, maybe you didn't start out with the explicit desire to get away from certain brands I actually, or certain um, people online. I actually think that the main um, driver of interest in removing all this content from YouTube, for instance, was really just the fact that certain people were able to game the system a little too hard. I think Alex Jones is a great example. Um, he advertised his own products. He didn't monetize on YouTube. And he was one of the biggest audiences on the whole uh, site. And so he was costing them a lot of money and not giving them much in return. And so I think at first, this really was more an issue of like seeding Which a reason to get away from the big business blunder that YouTube made of promising to be the open repository video for everybody. Which has to then, if that's true, fine. But then they're a fucking publisher. That's what that means. Because he, here's, right. here, here's what you're saying, which is so interesting. I've said YouTube, they are the smartest um, network of all time. Take Rob's Newsroom. I, I, me, I did 50 episodes of Rob's Newsroom. I gave that show two years of my life and I love doing it. And yeah. guess what? YouTube didn't have to spend $1 on it. Now, here's what happened. The market didn't agree with it. It's a flop. No sweat off YouTube's back. They didn't have to invest any money into the production of it. Now, if Rob's Newsroom came along and became the biggest hit on the internet, guess what? Now, they get 40% of the ad revenue or whatever. I don't know what percentage they take. They get a huge amount of the ad revenue. They didn't have to do any of the startup costs. They didn't have to have a meeting to figure out whether or not they were going to green light it. Mm -hmm. It's the smartest television network of all time. Hey, you put your shit up. And if people like it, we'll get the advertisers for you. But that's what every Fox, at the end of the day, that's what Fox is. Fox TV, Fox 5. Here's what they do. They pick a show. They go, we're going to produce this. We're going to put it on. Hopefully the audience likes it. And then we can sell it to advertisers. YouTube came around and said, listen, we're not going to write the show. We're not going to produce it. We're not going to put the money in it. We'll just, anyone can do it. And then guess what? If there's money to be made, we're going to capture that money. So then, like you're saying, people like Alex Jones came around, they used the platform, didn't monetize because they know that YouTube doesn't want them, and then they were able to get the huge audience, and YouTube's like, which by, I see this on Instagram, Instagram is getting fucked yes. because I, I sell, I've sold for people, it's crazy to me. Instagram, I don't know how much money went into creating Instagram, but essentially, if you're an influencer on Instagram, you can just sell ads, Instagram gets nothing off of that, so all of a sudden, you're... On, you're basically a partner of Instagram that you're using their technology in order to get in touch with your fans who aren't going to go directly to your website. For whatever reason, everyone in the world would prefer to interact with you on Twitter, on Instagram, and it's in part because you're almost a part of the smorgasbord. It's like if you were a steak, nobody in the audience wants to go to a steakhouse. They'll, they'll eat a bit of steak if it's along with the, you know, the food court in the mall. That's just the way people kind of consume their media. 
but you as a private individual, you get to sell ads on their platform and they don't make one penny. So back to what you were saying, YouTube was looking at that business model and they're like, we're hosting, we built the platform, the audience is here and we're not making any money off of it. So we got to get rid of the shit we can't monetize, which would be someone like Alex Jones. But now that they're making decisions that certain people shouldn't be here, there's no way to argue that they're not a publisher. Absolutely. And it's only incidental, I think, that the content is um, decidedly controversial. I think that YouTube and company very much made the ideas of Alex Jones and those folks um, hyper-controversial, specifically to um, discourage people from acting like this in the future on their platform. And of course, this would have killed a majority of publishers, broadcasters like, but Alex Jones, I guess, is a, a special kind of beast. And um, if you go back to his earlier stuff, you know, before he was so controversial, when he was just a conspiracy theory kind of guy, um, he was really at this a long time ago. He was independent media before that concept was even a thing. And so I have to imagine that um, those kinds of people really just stand on their own two feet a little better. But the other thing I would say is, you know, I, I think it's really tragic because, of course, Alex Jones really fell into my purview sometimes when I was discovering Ron Paul back in the early days of YouTube. And one of the things I think about is how YouTube must have realized that we really had positive associations with that website because we used it as a way to garner our love for this like, you know, political philosophy that we all share. Um, and that might also be what's contributing to some of the decisions today at YouTube. They want to be the Black Lives Matter people's source of, um, you know, good vibes and positivity about what they use to come to their views. And so but I think there's a lot of complex things right. um, charting that discussion. What's interesting, though, about that is so you're basically saying that there's a larger market share of Black Lives Matter people. And mm -hmm. so if they come to the website and they get that really feel good feeling of, hey, listen, I get to be a part of this movement via YouTube. YouTube gets that credit of that affiliation and then people will really love YouTube. There's going to be an actual love for that brand. However, Absolutely. the internet is able to just mirror what you like. So I would think YouTube can both be that person for the black, like it's not like the TV network where it gets to pick one thing that it puts on an APM. The Black Lives Matter person can show up there, see nothing but Black Lives Matter, doesn't even need to know that Alex Jones, like you have to go looking for Alex Jones. YouTube's not going to show that to you unless you go searching for it. So I would think in that regard, they're kind of giving up market share because they can be everything to everybody. They can do that. I think so. But also Netflix, um, you know, lost a lot of subscribers to that Cuties, um, you know, movie. And so I think that a lot of companies do make sort of calculated uh guesses about how can we maintain this enormous global centralized customer base, um, you know, and keep everything very Kissinger-esque. You know, I think these sorts of like weird rebuttals to movies like Cuties and to a lot of the YouTube takedowns, um, e even when Spotify um, appeared to not publish um, a single Joe Rogan episode, that caused a lot of people to cancel their memberships. I think that these kinds of things can be very much attributed to the same kinds of mechanisms that lead to like unpredicted outcomes of say, you know, our uh, war on terror. Uh, I think it's the same sort of like unanticipated consequences, this idea of blowback in action. Um, the censorship policies do have fangs to them. So this is in the other part that's interesting is if you're um, anyone listening to they're a libertarian or they're at least, you know, kind of savvy to financial markets. 
what this sounds like, it's not a government or giant socialist agenda who's coming to the internet and saying, hey, I want to censor it to push this political philosophy. It's brands that are looking for market share and they're predicting that there's going to be more market share in profits by aligning yourself with um, the, the PC culture people uh, and that there's going to be more advertising dollars there, which to me, uh, that's actually a rosier picture because I think that that prediction, uh, unless there are other forces at work, I don't think that prediction is going to be totally accurate because you just see over time, the uncensored is cool. Like, I don't know, like, can you just take take a step back and go, how do we come to a point where young kids think censored is cooler than uncensored? Our whole lives, that was like, holy shit, there's that dangerous thing and it's it's gone into the mainstream. Oh, there's someone saying, fuck you. There's someone talking about sex. There's someone talking about drugs. Like, for all of humanity, I would think, or maybe I'm just the idiot who liked that shit where it was you sold me on, hey, this is dangerous when it wasn't. But to me, being 20 years old and something seeping through that was dangerous or uncensored, Howard Stern back in the day or any of that shit, like that was that was cool and sexy. It was like, holy shit, it's the uncensored thing. And I, I so I would think that, you like, I would think that that's going to be the wrong investment because over time there's always going to be a market for, Hey, here's the uncensored thing. Um, or maybe the world is just so changed where I, like it's the opposite. Stan up used to have a joke about that where he's going to be yeah. the first, uh, like one looking back, like these, you know, these kids are so boring as opposed to every old person ever who was like these darn kids, uh, you know, doing their drugs. <laughs> so it's kind of like that where I'm like, why are these, these fucking darn kids who love safety. <laughs> yeah, they really do though. And that's the thing we're seeing. They don't want to get their, um, they don't want to even get driver's licenses. They want their parents to drive them around. We've been reading about this from the, 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 the younger generations. And I think it is a reflection of the kind of media they're consuming and the way that they um, posture for social status. And it's very much a uh, device and network driven um, mechanism, very much like the way complex communist or socialist societies work. And so I think there are just some stunning alignments that exist. Um, when I was um, at the uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, fiasco back in the day, I remember thinking to myself, wow, this so much mirrors the distributed communication nodes that I remember reading about from Italian fascists. And those ended up being major um, innovations later on, um, people use that as inspiration to do like BitTorrent, for instance, and peer-to-peer technology. And so I do see that there are maybe some consequences of just the fact that these industries kind of fit in neatly together, that this kind of outcome might be inevitable. But beyond that, I would say more and more people are learning how to make their own YouTube. And we already see services like Library, keeping COVID-19 videos alive that have otherwise been banned. We're seeing this everywhere. And I think it's an indication that um, there's always going to be that gray and black market for free content and for free speech, no matter what happens. And just, uh, I guess, thanks science, we have the internet, right? <laughs> so um, what are some of these sites? Because you just mentioned one that I haven't heard of, which uh, are becoming these alternative YouTubes. Like what would you say are or the alternative social medias? What would you say is kind of the, the hottest ones in those categories? Well, I know that the hot ones are um, things like Parler, and, and these are really services that um, are just copies of things like Twitter and Instagram for the most part. I think that the most promising um, social medias and alternative approaches are a combination of things that are very old and uh, things that are very new. Um, on the old side of things, we have the IRC protocol, the internet relay chat, 
protocol that was used by programmers and nerds back in the 80s and it's remained to this day and it's where you'll find a lot of the most i think compelling conversation from both intelligent and reasonable people still um beyond that We've got um, the secure scuttlebutt protocol, which is a very promising new technology. It uses a concept called decentralized federation. Um, and what that basically means, you can maybe look at it very much like the federal government's relationship with the states. Um, it's basically a protocol for establishing your own state within a federated uh, group of other states that run the same network, but only allow in certain people. And so basically, um, it mimics Jack Dorsey's idea of a decentralized Twitter. Um, I also know of Library, which is a really promising video platform. That's spelled actually L-B-R-Y. Um, and this is also a cryptocurrency technology that basically promotes sharing of video content in a completely um, censorship-free realm where you get rewarded and incentivized to share this content because you know it's funny someone from over there was trying to pitch me on bringing content over to that website and the ability for the funding through the crypto exchanges mm -hmm. and it was a very long call and the guy was very really smart and i just couldn't i couldn't handle it i like but that's interesting that you're now bringing that up as being uh i guess a formidable option and promising uh, for freedom. So just before we switch gears to another topic, and yeah. this was a wild, wild and interesting conversation, I do just want to go back to kind of the original question and bring it home, which is uh, you're, you're living in the, in, in the tech space and you do see that it has a, let's, I'm going to go uh, very Fox News here, let's call it a radical left agenda. Mm -hmm. And so we've explored that the radical left agenda um, kind of comes from two places. The first place is that uh, these companies are just looking for market share and there's more market share in placating to advertisers and the market that's looking for the safe content. And the second one is that the younger employees are coming in with a uh, agenda, which is definitely geared towards censorship and the fact that these sites should be these safe places or respect certain values. And I guess they've been so indoctrined that they feel like that that's their social cause. Like even at the, you know, so they're really coming in with that agenda. Yeah. And as you have more and more of these young kids who feel like that's, would you almost say, is that, is that so ingrained in some of these people? Like that's more important to them than the money they're making or like that, you know, they're kind of that, that's their religion. That's their social cause where, even if they had to give up, you know, some of their salary, it's worth it to them. Like, I don't know how much to me when I'm working at a job, I mean, I'll, I'll leave a job or I won't work a job if it's unethical kind of thing. But I also feel like I'm not really there to change. You know what I mean? I get paid to do the job or I got to go somewhere else because I don't want to do it. Or, you know, sometimes I can have conversations about product quality where it's like, I think we got to boost product quality and I can get involved in that way and I can definitely gear it towards, hey, here's where I think we're not providing enough value and I got to sell this and I want there to be more value. So like those things are, and by the way, that's, that is, to me, that's a service to companies because usually the salespeople are on the front line actually interfacing with the customers. So they actually know better than anybody what the customers actually want. And more often than not, you can make really good product changes if you actually talk to your sales guys. Uh, now, I, I've been fucking ranting a lot here. <laughs> but bring it back to an actual question for you. So we've thoroughly explored 
the A, which is uh, the A reasoning, which is that people are looking for market share and advertisers seem to be more interested in this safer socialist type thing, which by the way, doesn't make so much sense why these guys would be pushing for socialism because they're going to erode their own profits. But let's shelve that for now. Now you got your B, which is that you've got more and more college educated kids that are coming into these uh, professions and they seem to be kind of idealists or they seem to really be wanting to push this. So you're actually working in these jobs. Can you tell me to what extent these kids are, let's go with the, is it the Fox News, the radical left, or are these just kind of kids in 10 years from now, they're going to drop this horse shit? Well, I think that there's there's a bit of a priest and cathedral thing going on here, right? There's the foot soldiers, and then there's the high ups. And I think they have different motivations, but they align. I think um, that's the whole notion of vertical integration at these companies, right? And so I think you're right to identify it is um, a two-pronged issue. But I would also point out um, that, you know, the, 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 the B reasoning you're pointing out, these people are, I guess, lucky in the sense that they don't realize how much they could be putting their jobs on the line by speaking out and being this way many, many times. And some recent events, that especially Google, have shown that you can be um, that one guy, James Damore, uh, who put out the, uh, the memo about women in tech and be fired, or you can be um, the opposite of that, that woke uh, crazy lady in AI um, Tim Guru, I, I can't pronounce her name correctly, but um, you can get fired for being that way too. And so I think the main thing is that these companies really don't come in with agendas themselves. It's the people that have been conditioned very much to um, existing, they're uh, living with these products, where I think um, maybe they've done a lot of damage to these kids emotionally, psychologically, that they sort of subconsciously feel it's their duty to make the products, um, you know, safer. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of these kids were cyber bullied. Um, I have to imagine that there's a lot of that going on. There's so also, there's a I, lot I, of complexity I, behind that question. I can't speak for Google or Facebook, but if you're, if we're naming the tech companies, Apple's up there is one of the biggest tech companies. Yeah. But the fact that Apple relies on whatever the fuck their Chinese manufacturing slave camps are, and that you're going to be some 20 year old kid going to work there with ethical standards that we got to make sure that the Safari browser functions in a certain way that is more left of our pol like for, for public policies. I, I mean, I'm sure I could think of more examples of just the fucking absolute, you know, hypocritical bullshit of being that type of a person. But I, I guess that is that that's the reality of what who and what these kids are. Well, I mean, look, I would also look at like how come a company like Facebook owns the uh, Oculus VR, you know, product like, you know, this is the company trying to connect people together in you're isolating the world with headsets that you're putting on their head. Like, I think the cognitive dissonance of these companies is um, it's pretty strong and compelling to many of us viewing it from the outside. When I was at Amazon and at Audible um, in my early days, I was watching this transformation happen in real time. And I got so disturbed that I left one day on uh, Christmas Eve of uh, 2013. And um, I'm sorry, 2014. And um, a month later, I felt like the entire industry had changed. So. Uh, on uh, well, what what before uh, I'll ask. What did you see as being the giant change, or what was like the real pushing point where you're like, I can't work here? Well, um, to me, it was I guess um, the idea that um, formality was going to um, take precedence over product quality, and I think that's something that we're just seeing everywhere uh, at all levels of these companies. It's 
more important to follow the rules and do the process the way that it's been laid out than it is to do what it takes to make a good product and to make people happy and satisfied. Um, yeah, I think it's just that it's, it's that, like the playground effect. They're they're right. treating it like it's recess. Right. It's just you're you're describing as industry's age. You get more of that bureaucracy. And you're like, I was here to try and make something that's awesome. So if there's just going to be a bunch of rules. Uh, but what you were saying about the cognitive dissonance of the people that work at these companies, I'll point out that from a sales perspective, one of the best things that government even sells people on is, hey, we're moral. We're, we're here to help people out. Yeah. That sells. That, that idea sells. One of my favorite scenes, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Boiler Room, which is a great movie. You never saw a movie? Bo I haven't seen it, no. All right, Boiler Room, it's, it's a really good movie. By the way, if you've never done any sales in your whole life, there's two speeches in there from Ben Affleck, which I promise you there's really good sales insight. They don't use their sales tools for good in that movie. Yes. Um, but those two sales speeches are, are good lessons for sales. But there's this great scene where basically they're selling, uh, they're calling people up with fake companies and they're trying to prop, you know, get the stock prices up so that they can sell out of their positions on the fake companies, make a profit. So they're selling companies that don't exist. So on, on one of the days, the CEO of the company comes out to the floor of people that's going to sell. And he's trying to get these guys amped up to go sell this product, to call up, you know, all the people that they deal with and get them to buy shares. Now, these people are not ethical right? This is a room of unethical people that are getting on the phone, getting people to buy bullshit. And so you would think even in this landscape, fictional movie, the CEO would get out there and go, guys, I've got this thing that you're going to be able to sell this shit out of. It's a medical company. This is going to be a moneymaker. Those idiots that you talk to on the phone are going to buy this hook, line, and sinker. Get out there, sell the shit out of this. But that's not the speech he gives. You can go look it up. He talks about, we've got this new medical product that we're investing in. Here's the best part. Not only are we going to be able to make like our clients some money, we're actually going to be able to help the world on this one. So this is a feel-good one. Get out there. The point being, even in that fictional movie, that's the better sale. Is it. So in every corporation, every every everything, every decision is always about how we're helping people. That's just sales at its best. Everything is to help somebody else out. It's never about us. It's never about them. So even if you're at Facebook and you're building this new thing, which you're going to be taking 60% of content down or whatever, you're going to remove people like the part of the problem page. Yeah. Your speech has to be, hey guys, we're here to make this community. Hey guys, we're here to make face. So it's just... That's bullshit salesmanship from, from top to bottom of some college kid going, oh, look, Facebook's going to allow me to, they're not going to, the conversation's not censorship. It's about, hey, we're going to make this a better community by making Safety. it safe for, yeah. And so that, that just gets reflected both ways where that college kid is actually being bought into that narrative and yep. some Facebook CEO is smart enough to just sell it in that way because he's not getting up to go, hey guys, we're really just interested in making money. And so we're going to eradicate free speech from here so that we can get Procter & Gamble to spend more money here in the fourth quarter. So I'll just say that, you know, when I started out at Amazon and Audible um, in particular, there were these um, sort of like slogans about what the theme of our work was for, the, for that quarter, for that year. And for the quarter and year that I started, it was pedal to the metal. That was the growth slogan. At the end, when I quit, it was different. That was it. Just the word different. And to me, that imprecision combined with that um, kind of bizarre interest in what, not what we know works, but what we think is interesting. It's just, you know, that, that's kind of, uh, I think, a broader resemblance of our economy. 
There you go. All right. So I, we're going to call it here. If you're open to it, I'd like to do a part two um, in the near future. I got a Oculus recently and I know that you work in the VR space and I just uh, wanted yes. to, I wanted to just get into a conversation about VR. Cause I think uh, in terms of general consumer use, I'm going to say that we're, we're at V1 for virtual reality. Like no um, I know that virtual reality has been around since the eighties, but I'm saying we're now at the first point in, from, in my opinion, that for $300, anyone in the world can be plugging in. And it's not what you remember as a kid of seeing virtual reality. This thing is immersive to the point that like, you feel like you're living it, even when it's stick figures and playing a game. It's really, a really, really is a sensation. Um, and on the positive side, I think some of the educational opportunities are going to be uh, phenomenal, but let's, um, let, let's schedule for it soon. If you're open to it, because I use my head here more than I thought I was going to. So I'd like to, I'd like to save that for another episode if it's okay with you. Of course. And this was a real pleasure. So anytime, man, happy to, um, I don't know. Cause you work in the tech space. If there's anything that you want to plug, please, uh, let people know where they can follow you, find you or engage in conversation. Sure thing. Um, you can definitely find me on Twitter. I'm at CPU God, CPU G O D. And uh, my company I mentioned at the beginning of our call is Storyboard, and that is storyboard.fm. Okay, dude, thanks so much. This was a blast. And uh, we're going to schedule maybe even next weekend because I do want to talk VR with you. Hey, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Take care, Rob. Bye. All right. Later, Sid.